What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the C-String Podcast. Glad to be back today. It is September 9th. It's Friday, September 9th, 2022. I'm going to Wichita tomorrow for my soccer game. That's going to be exciting. But today, I am here to talk to you about history. And it's a certain part of history that uh, I've always wanted to know, to know more about, um, to look into. Uh, it's... It's not everybody's cup of tea, but I think it's super interesting. Um, I never learned about this stuff that much in high school. You go over this topic, you do go over this topic because it it lands itself right in the middle of the Cold War. Um, You do go over this topic, but you never delve too deep into it. Um, And I'm sure there's a couple of uh, names you might recognize. There's definitely a couple names you are going to recognize. There's a couple of uh, objects, I guess is what I'll say for now that you're going to recognize, but we'll get right into it. I'm really excited to share this with you guys. This might be a two-parter. It's a lot of information, uh, depending on how long I want it to be. Uh, so we'll see how it, how we're going through it, how we feel uh, towards about the halfway point, uh, see how much time we're taking up. I don't want to take up too much of you guys' time, but let's get straight into it. The topic of today's History Rewind is the space race. To me, the official start date to what became known as the space space race between the USSR and the United States is the 21st of August in 1957. This is my start date because this is when the USSR finished development of the first intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, An intercontinental ballistic missile, it's it's in the name. It's It's a missile, it's a ballistic missile that can shoot other continents (laughs) it can shoot up to other continents Uh, it's just in the name that's what the title is and to do that it needs to exit the earth's atmosphere um august 21st is when they began to start launches of it i think this is the initial start date because it was the first successful launch of the r7 semiorca um some of you uh some of you might know that this the r7 is what was used to eventually launch Sputnik 1 and Sputnik 2. Semyorka means seven-digit in Russian, uh, so that's why it's got that name. Um, Most people you ask would probably say the launching of the first artificial satellite into space by the USSR a couple of months later is the start of the space race. But again, in my opinion, uh, an ICBM travels through space. And... The U.S. was trying to build one at the same time the USSR was. So I think this intercontinental ballistic missile creation, to me, is the start of the space race. And of course, as I mentioned previously, the R-7 was used to launch both Sputnik 1, which was the eventual first artificial satellite, into space. So without the R-7, you don't have have Sputnik 1. So that, that is why I believe that this date is the real start of the space race, but let's dive straight into this. Let's dive straight into this. Uh, I'm going to split this information up into kind of like four parts. Um, we're going to start with an era, part one, which is going to be the era from 1957 to 1959, only three years. But there's a lot of information here. It's just getting off the ground. So Sputnik one was the first artificial satellite, and it was launched into orbit on October 4th of 1957 as a part of the Soviet space program. So in this Race technically, and in quotes here, in this race, 
the USSR has gotten off on the front foot. They, they got out of the block quicker than the U.S. did. Obviously, this provided the USSR with valuable information, such as the density of the upper atmosphere. It also gave them more information about the ionosphere. Um, won't go too much into detail about the, what the ionosphere is, uh, but essentially, the practical importance here, like the thing you need to know, is that it influences radio propagation. So that you need to know stuff about the ionosphere because you need to, radio waves are essential to space, spacecraft. So information about this, about the ionosphere, is really important to know. And obviously, uh, the Soviets got to it first. Um, Chief rocket scientist Sergei Korolev proposed a development plan of an artificial satellite to the Minister of Defense. Mikhail Tikhonrovov is an essential engineer for the USSR at the time, and his plans for similar tr projects were forwarded along with the plan that Korolev provided. On the 30th of August, Vasily Rubikov, the head of the State Commission on the R-7 rocket test launches, held a meeting where Korolev presented calculation data for a spaceflight trajectory to the moon. They decided to develop a three-stage version of the R-7 rocket for satellite launches. This came after Leonid Sedov, a Soviet physicist, announced that Russia would launch an artificial satellite just a few days after Dwight Eisenhower did the same thing on the 29th of July, 1955. So, at the end of July in 1955, Eisenhower announced that US, the U.S. Um, would launch an artificial satellite, and he wanted they wanted to be the first to do it. And so uh, Leonid Sotov, a physicist for the Soviet Union, not like a, not like an executive or a person in power, a physicist said, well, we're going to do the same thing. And preliminary design work of the first artificial satellite, which uh, at the time was known as Object D, uh, began in July of 1956. Um, however, for the Soviets, the design process was giving the engineers more problems than they had originally thought. And fearing that the U.S. was close to launching their own satellite, they shelved the construction of Object D and began work on a smaller, lighter, and more simple satellite. Sputnik 1 was launched with an R-7 rocket. Again, and I mentioned this earlier, another reason why I think the R-7 is a real start to the space race, it is why we have Sputnik 1. But just to go over, uh, go over a few key details here, their Object D is not, the, is not Sputnik 1. Um, Object D was the first artificial satellite that was proposed. That was the plan that Sergei Korolev proposed to the Minister of Defense. And that's what they began working on in July of 1956. They shelved it in 1957 because they, had, they were fearing that the U.S. was closer to launching their satellite than they were. So then they created this really small, uh, light, and very simple satellite just to get it out there before the U.S. did. So maybe it was a little, like, there was a little tactical play going on right there. You know, they knew they wouldn't get their stuff done in time, their big project, so they shelved it for a simpler one, a smaller one, and they got it out there. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe some tactical play going on there, but they did it. They got it out there first. And then just 32 days later, Sputnik 2 would launch. Um, because of the huge success of Sputnik 1, Nikita Khrushchev ordered Korolev to begin production on another satellite to be ready before the 40th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. I'm assuming, I'm going to assume you guys have some understanding. Nikita Khrushchev, you know, had a big guy, big guy, head, head guy. 
Bolshevik Revolution, Russian Revolution, like, just, just gonna, just gonna have you guys fill in the blanks there. Won't go into too much detail there, but because of the immensely short turnaround time, Korolev used another basic satellite. So again, Sputnik 2 is not Object D either. Um, I, I won't get into the launching of Object D uh, into too much detail, but it, it ended up being what was called Sputnik 3. So when, so when they had more time, they did develop it into something else, and or I guess to what they wanted originally, and they would get that launched as the title Sputnik 3. Uh, this time, this basic satellite had a, a major addition, however. Um, as you could tell just by looking at its design, it's got a little pot on top, and then under that, it's got another a slightly bigger pod with a little window in it. And it almost looks as, you, as if you could fit something in there. Um, and it was designed to carry a small passenger. And sure enough, Sputnik 2 was the aircraft that launched the first mammal into space. The sealed compartment contained the dog Laika. Laika was astray in the streets of Moscow. Soviet personnel gave her several names and nicknames, among them Kudrykia, Russian for Little Curly, Zhuchka, for Little Bug, and Limon Chic, which is for Little Lemon. Laika, the Russian name for several breeds of dogs similar to the Husky, was the name popularized around the world. Its literal translation would be Barker, from the Russian verb layat, to bark. There were no plans for the survival of Laika, and she died due to overheating as the conditioner in her sealed compartment died out. However, a statue was erected for Laika. Um, so, Laika, uh, unfortunately, here, uh, got in a tough place, really. Um, she should have feigned sickness, if I'm going to be honest. That's, that's the only way you're getting out of this. Um, because she was sent on a, on a death, on a death mission, you know, um, just so the Soviets could say, hey, we got a mammal in the space. Um, it wasn't a human, it was this dog that couldn't say no to us, so we just put her out there and then she died. Um, she was going to die regardless, it didn't matter what killed her, something was going to kill her. Um, but they did have um, phot a photometer on there that did take pictures of her every once in a while. So I guess that's pretty cool. Um, but she did get her own statue, so there you go. You die, you get to see, you know, if I, if I could choose right now to die, but get a statue, that's pretty tough. That's a pretty tough choice. I might, I might want that statue. Um, but two other photometers were on board also, uh, but they were to measure solar radiation. Uh, that was really the only specific purpose for Sputnik 2, since the turnaround time was so short. They just, they just threw a dog part compartment on there and then threw a couple photograph or photometers and were like, all right. There it is. Um, but the both Sputnik spacecrafts did eventually get pulled back down to Earth, and both were destroyed as they drove through the Earth's atmosphere. So there you go. That is, this is the start of the space race right here. R7 rocket, Sputnik 1, Sputnik 2. This is all Soviet work. All, every lick of it. Uh, the U.S. was just caught on, caught on the back foot really here. Um, I would like to mention... This isn't the first endeavor into space, I don't think. Um, like, ten years prior or something. Or, like, I can't quite remember. Like, just after World War II, I think Germany sent something into space. Sent, like, a... I don't want... It wasn't a satellite, but they, like, threw something out into space. It was like if you throw a baseball into space. You were like, oh, I'm the first thing... I'm the first dude that's put something in space. Like, they just threw it out there, I think. Um... 
So again, the Russians were technically the first people, first people to throw things into space, but they did make the first artificial satellite, first intercontinental ballistic missile, and if you, if you if you think this is a cool title, first mammal, you know, we sent it out there to die, but hey, we did that. Um, over the next couple years, there would be more minor achievements. Or in this case, victories for both sides, since we're technically now considering this a, a war of sorts. However, I believe the next major victory came in September of 1959. Luna 2 was the first spacecraft to reach the surface of the moon. It was launched on the 12th of September in 1959, and it followed a, a direct path to the moon once it detached from its launching system. An interesting thing to note is that Luna 2 did not have any propulsion system on itself. It solely relied on the launching system. It landed on the moon just after the clock had declared the day of September 14th. Luna 2 impacted the moon and excreted the sodium vapor upon its impact. Not only did this let the Russians know where exactly it landed, it also explored how gas would behave on the moon. Luna 2 did not detect a magnetic field or radiation belt around the moon. And again, the USSR had accomplished a huge achievement and gathered some value, valuable data about the moon in the process. So again... Uh, from 1957 to 1959, uh, as I stated before, just a couple of minor achievements uh, for each side. The U.S. kind of starting to get its feet under itself at this point, uh, starting to explore some 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 options here and uh, advance their technology. Um, but again, the Soviets would have the upper hand with Luna 2 being the first to reach the surface of the moon. Luna 1, there's actually been like five or six Luna projects to this point. Uh, I think the, fir the first three or four I guess it would be four. The first four were not uh, declared official, like, launches. So they didn't get, like, official titles because they went so horribly. Luna 1 did it, did launch. It got out of the atmosphere, but it just it just missed the moon. So they it did launch. It just missed it. So they did declare that one as an actual launch because it did get out of the atmosphere. It was on its, it was basically halfway to its goal. It just kind of, it just, just kind of missed the moon. Uh, but they got it right with Luna 2, didn't give up after that, um, and they were the first, it was a hard impact, it wasn't a soft landing, it was just like cr straight crash into the moon. Um, but again, from 1957 to 1959, it's all the USSR so far. It's going their way every single time. Um, and this, the Cold War had kind of started before this, um, but this kind of woke up, um, I would say, the higher-ups of the U.S. because these Sputnik 1 and Sputnik 2 would kind of create a sort of crisis feeling in the U.S. And they believed that this 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 launching of, uh, or this advancement that the USSR had made um, was a huge technological gap between the USSR and the U.S., um, the, like common citizens believe that, and even officials and higher ups were starting to believe that too. They thought that the USSR they were doing so many things right in the past three years, and the U.S. just couldn't catch up with them. That they thought that the USSR has to be a million years ahead of us when it comes to technology. Um, but as we moved into the new decade, from 1960 to 1969. This is where I believe the U.S. achieves their first victory in the space race. It's been all USSR up to this point. You know, if you think of this as a boxing match, we've got 10 rounds going on. The USSR 
completely wiped the floor with the U.S. in rounds one and two. So let's keep going, though. Let's keep going. Let's let's see what how it turns out. But right now, you're thinking, oh, the USSR has got this sling knocked up. Well, as I mentioned before, the unanticipated success of Sputnik 1 precipitated the Sputnik crisis and prompted President Dwight Eisenhower to authorize the corona program. That word gets people very freaked out nowadays. Uh, it was a good thing back then. It was a top-priority reconnaissance program managed jointly by the Air Force and the CIA. Satellites were developed to photograph denied areas from space, provide information about Soviet missile capacity, and replace risky U-2 reconnaissance fights over Soviet territory. On August 11th of 1960, the first satellite was recovered intact from orbit, and seven days later, the first aerial recovery of spy photography was recovered along with the satellite. The primary reason of the development of, spy of spacecraft for spyware was because the planes the U.S. had previously been using were being shot down. Specifically, the shooting of a U-2 spy plane in May of 1960 pushed the Corona project forward. While Russia would be able to get its hands on this technology eventually, it was nonetheless a step forward for the U.S. So, a new decade, a new United States. Revitalized, I guess you could say, by the Sputnik crisis, they authorized the Corona program, um, and it was managed by the Air Force and the CIA, um, and this allowed the U.S. to to photograph or restricted, I should say, areas from space. They didn't have to risk being shot down uh, by Soviet defenses when you're in space. Uh, so that this was a huge step forward. The Discoverer 13 was what the first satellite was called that was recovered intact from orbit. That was the, called the Discoverer 13. And then the Discoverer 14 was the one that was recovered with the spy, with the spy film inside of it. Because um, that's the one they used to take the pictures, and then they, they recovered that one. The Discoverer 13 was sort of just kind of like a test drive. And then they actually committed to their plane on the Discoverer 14, and it worked to perfection. So this, I don't know. I mean, this spying just seems kind of like a shitty thing. Uh, going and then you go on a, you're not even doing it. You start by infiltrating on ground, and that doesn't work. So then you try to fly above them. Well, that starts working, but then it doesn't work because they just shoot you down. So then you're like, well, I'll go even higher, and then you just go into space. And it's like, well, Jesus Christ, are right, we just how fucking high are we gonna go? Are we <laughs> this? We're we going this far just to spy on each other, just to take a picture of some restricted area. It makes it makes perfect sense for the time because both sides thought the other was doing some really sketchy shit in their restricted areas, which they were. They they were. They were just doing that. Uh, if you know about the Cold War, you know what they were doing in restricted areas. So there you go. Um, but again, huge step forward for the U.S. And finally, they land a punch. They finally get one right in the gut. Maybe a left hook right to the cheek. They win round three. For the next year, the U.S. and Russia would have ha would have a weird infatuation with sending plants and animals into space. However, it was clear that the two sides were competing to see who could be the first to carry a human into outer space. And once again, it was Russia who would win this particular battle. Vostok 1 was the first space flight in the Vostok program, and the first human orbital space flight in history. It was launched on April 12, 1961, and Yuri Gagarin was the astronaut aboard. Not only did Gagarin complete an orbit of Earth, he was able to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and safely land. He landed southwest of Angles, which is in the Saratov region in Russia. 
So yes, in just a few years' time, uh, just after just after they sent a mammal out there with no way to get it back, they were able to send somebody out into space and create a plan for them to recover and re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and be safe when they land. Didn't take that long for them to do it. Super impressive here uh, from the Soviet Union. Uh, more about Yuri Gagarin, though. He was born in Klushino, Russia. Uh, Gagarin joined the Soviet Air Forces as a pilot. He would later be selected for the Soviet, sir, Soviet space program. For achieving this major milestone in the space race, he became an international celebrity and was awarded many medals and honors, the most prestigious of all being the Hero of the Soviet Union Award, which is the nation's highest honor. He was actually banned from further flights after he received this award as the nation feared a fatality. But after graduating from an Air Force Engineering Academy in 1968, he could again fly aircraft. But it wouldn't be just like a month afterwards before he would die because the training jet he was piloting would crash. So the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin. You should really know that name. Um, I think it's really important to know Yuri Gagarin. Um, you know, as as Americans, we like to like to con concentrate on our own success. And as Soviets, I'm sure they do the same. Um, it's just it's how it works. Um, but these names of these important people, um, like Sergei Korolev, who came up with the initial designs of the first artificial satellite, and Yuri Gagarin, the first man to enter space. Um, the, just the fact, you know, how can we forget these people? What an insane human achievement. Space? Are you kidding me? Why are, why are we going out there? <laughs> how? How did we get... How do, how do we do this? There, it just does, how, do we, how do we just launch a satellite out there have it go orbit perfectly around Earth because we position it perfectly on Earth's gravitational on Earth's gravitational pull to where it's not too far away so it starts floating out into space but not too close so it just comes straight back down. Like, what? And then they provide them with stuff in inside the actual spacecraft itself to maneuver and, you know, he's got all sorts of things to worry about. Uh -huh. And he's got air. He's got enough air in there. It just... How, it, it doesn't make any sense and it, it nonetheless this was still able to happen and Yuri Gagarin uh I don't know if he was I don't actually know if he was chosen or if he chose to do this I actually have no idea I know he was chosen to be a part of the Soviet space program he was selected into that he did not choose to do that but as as for like being chosen to actually go on this mission I have no idea um, but still, I think it's very important you know his name, Yuri Gagarin, or at least remember the last name, just Gagarin, um, in April 12th, 1961, launched into space, first human into space. Very, very cool. Uh, after that endeavor in 1961, the U.S. couldn't find a major response to Gagarin's spaceflight in the coming years. From 1962 to 1967, both sides would have minor victories, but that is all. However, throughout these years, both sides were getting closer and closer to the moon. In September of 1968, the Zond-5 would become the first spacecraft to return to the Earth after circling the moon. And you might have been able to guess from the name of the spacecraft that this is yet another Russian victory. There were also some organisms on board. Two tortoises, fruit fly eggs, and some plants. So I guess you could say this was also the first instance in which living organisms orbited the moon and returned safely. 
so it would seem that Russia yet again had the upper hand against the United States, and at this time it, it seemed all but certain that Russia would land on the moon first. So, uh, whereas the 1950s, we were, uh, late 1950s, we, everybody was kind of wondering, oh, could we get a person out into space? When the 1960s started, and especially after Gagarin made it to space, people were like, well, can we get somebody to the moon? Can this really happen? Well, the Zon 5 proved we could at least circle the moon, which is a very, which is a step closer. Um, there was a lot of, again, minor achievements from 1962 to 67, but September of 1968, when Zon 5 circled the moon and also had uh, living organisms aboard while it did it, a huge victory again for the USSR. Um, it, the two tortoises, I believe, did get like um, get like altered or something, or like chemically altered or biochemically altered. I'm not quite sure, but they think it was because they were actually starved a little bit while they were on the while they were on the spacecraft. Spacecraft. They don't think it was because of anything else. They think it was just they were low on food. And that's why that changed. Um, uh, and that's, I can understand that because the fruit fly eggs were fine and the plants were fine as well. So, and they, they had sufficient like food and water. So I, I, I think I could understand why, I mean, if it was all three of them that had like gotten uh, changed, then maybe I would be a little bit skeptical, but because it was only the tortoises, I could understand their reasoning there. Um, and again, this this seemed all but certain, all but certain that the USSR was going to get to the moon first. I mean, the US had had one victory up to this point, just that, just one victory. And it was the, the, the Discoverer 13 and Discoverer 14 was the spyware stuff. It, you know, can, can they, that's not even close really to anything related to the moon. So can they... Can they pull up their britches and get back into this fight? Well, surely they they could. Three months later, in December of 1968, the United States would finally figure out how to fight back. Apollo 8 is the first human spaceflight to reach the moon. The crew orbited the moon ten times without landing and then departed safely back to Earth. The three astronauts, Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders, were the first humans to photograph-slash-witness the far side of the moon. If this were a boxing match, as I mentioned earlier, it seems like the U.S. finally figured out how to counterpunch eight rounds in, and it was finally an even fight. Not only would the U.S. learn how to counterpunch, they would go for the K.O. Apollo 11 is regarded as one of the greatest human achievements in history. It was the first time humans landed on the moon, walked on the moon, and relaunched from the moon. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed the Apollo Lunar Mondrel on July 20th of 1969. Neil and Buzz exited the spacecraft six hours later, which would have been around three coordinated universal time, UTC. Uh, the landing was actually broadcast live on TV, as crazy as that sounds. It also fulfilled the promise President Kennedy made earlier in the decade, in which he said before this decade is out, landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. It truly capped off the decade's race to the moon perfectly. In 1968, and I guess into 1969, the United States brought everything to the table. Um, it seemed like they were just dormant for 10 years, and they finally, finally got something going. 
firstly, let's talk about Apollo 8. Um, everybody knows everybody knows Apollo 11, but let's talk about Apollo 8 first. It was the first human spaceflight to reach the moon. So whereas the Russians had gotten two tortoises, some fruit fly eggs, and a plant over there, the U.S. managed to get humans around the moon. There was three men on the crew, Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders. They got to photograph and witness the far side of the moon. Um, then they departed from from the moon and landed safely back on Earth. Um, so again, uh, just kind of incredible stuff here. I I can't even imagine what it takes, how much calculating goes into what I guess would be uh, like 12 to 13 days, 14 day, 12, 13 days probably of space flight. I'm sure it's like months of calculating and preparation. And when you have a setback, like imagine you have a setback, like you, maybe you have a start date for when you want to launch these people and then something happens or you have a setback or something's wrong in your calculations all this time and you have to move the date. You have to do all your calculations over again. The moon's in a different spot. The earth's in a different spot. Everything's in a different spot. You have to do everything over. I can't imagine how long it took for them to get these three people lined up perfectly so they could do 10 laps or around the moon. 10 laps. I thought I, I thought it was 10 days. But it's 10 laps, actually. I don't know what I said earlier. It's 10 laps around the moon. So I don't really know how many days it would have taken. But to do 10 laps around the moon and then come back, it, I, I can't imagine how much calculating that takes. Um, and the re-entry process into Earth has to be a fucking nightmare. Like, that has to be sh shitting my pants like, holy shit, I hope this works. Like, there's there's no other way to describe it. That has to be... That and maybe the... That and the takeoff has got to be the, the two scariest parts for, like, any um anybody that's on the team. They're just watching and just waiting and hoping that all of their math leads to this miracle. Um, but again, that's Apollo 8. Uh, Frank Borman, James Lovell, William Anders, remember those guys. Apollo 11 came next, and as I said, regarded as one of the greatest human achievements ever. Um, I don't know if you ask a Russian if they'll say the same thing. I don't know a Russian, so I can't ask one. But it was the first time we could humans landed on the moon. Walked on the moon, and then relaunched from the moon. They weren't just stuck there living forever. Uh... You will you certainly know one name, Neil Ar Neil Armstrong. You know who that is. But he did have a friend on there with him. It wasn't just him. Actually, I don't know if he was his friend. Um, but I do know he was a co-pilot, Buzz Aldrin. And on Ju in July of 1969, they landed on the moon. Uh, super early in the morning, UTC. Don't know what time that is here. Um, but the fact that it was broadcast on live TV is pretty fucking cool. That's pretty damn. That's pretty damn cool. Uh, I I would have certainly tuned in, no doubt about that. I would turn in if somebody was landing on the moon right now. I turn it. I'd tune in right now. Um, and obviously, you know, the promise Kennedy made. This might be common knowledge, but you know, he said before the decade's over, well, we'll get somebody on the moon. I'm sure many people know about that. But this this in nineteen or nineteen sixty nine, perfect end of the decade. Um, with somebody landing on the moon. It's it's what they had worked for for the entire decade. That's what Russia and the U.S. were trying to do throughout all of the 1960s. And just as the, just as the decade was coming to an end, they were able to do it. And fortunately for the U.S., it was them. 
and it wasn't Russia. Um, but however, um, just as with the beginning of the space race, I would probably disagree with most opinions about when the space race actually ended. This is because most people would probably say that the space race had ended right here. And yes, while the moon landing is probably the single most important part of the events that occurred, um, and undoubtedly a great victory for the U.S., I think it's important to recall some of the other events that occurred after the first moon landing. I consider the disbandment of the USSR to be the end of the space race, as the two sides were still competing against each other to make big advancements and discoveries in outer space. And while nothing would match the hype or the historical significance of the moon landing, in my opinion, there are still technological achievements that are worth noting. Um, so, uh, if you don't know, in 1991 is when the USSR disbands. Um, and I think, I genuinely think that that's the end of the space race. A lot of people, I think if I asked most people um, that at least knew a, a little bit about the space race, they would say, well, it probably ended when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. And I just don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I think there's... 20 years worth uh, more stuff here. So we're going to dive right into it. We're going to go in straight in to the next to the next decade from 1970 to 1975 in part three of our little story here. 1970 and 1971 would consist solely of Soviet progress. The U.S. had just one achievement during this time, the Mariner 9. It was the first spacecraft to orbit Mars. This happened in November of 1971, I believe. Um... However, just the USSR had way more achievements during this two-year period. They created the first remote-controlled lunar rover, most first remote-controlled lunar rover, I believe, uh, the Lunacod 1. It was able to operate for 11 lunar days when it was only expected to operate for three lunar days. Uh, one lunar day is approximately one month on Earth. So they thought it was only going to last three months. It lasted 11. Uh, so that's pretty impressive from the Lunacod. Um, it traversed a total distance of about 10.5 kilometers. Um, the Soviets were also the first to soft land a spacecraft on another planet. The Venera 7 would land on Venus, and from there it transmitted data back to Earth. Later on in the decade, uh, the Venera 9 would orbit and photograph Venus. Um, that's, that happens later in the de decade, though, like 76 or 77, something like that, somewhere around there. Um, and then in April... In June of 1971, the Soviets would launch the first human-crewed space station, the Salyut-1, and the first human-crewed orbital observatory, the Soyuz-11. Then, in November and December of 1971, the Soviets would achieve the first hard landing on Mars, courtesy of the Mars-2, and the first soft landing on Mars, courtesy of the Mars-3. So in the first two years of 1971, this, this is how the U.S. needed to respond after Gagarin was the first man in space this is how they needed to respond they didn't they waited like nine or ten years and or eight or nine years i guess and then responded with something big whereas um the ussr right after the the big u.s achievement came out with a flurry of uh of achievements and advancements and they're very significant uh the first the first soft landing on both venus and mars uh first hard landing on mars i guess too but um, that's really cool. The first human crewed um, space station and the first human crewed orbital observatory. Uh, I believe the space station, it wasn't inhabited for super long. I think the Soyuz uh, 11 did dock 
with the space station and they like they went on to the space station or something and they like I don't know I don't know what they did after that they just hung out had a beer um but the Soyuz 10 which had been uh in space previously also tried to dock with the Soyuz 1 but that went wrong and they just they had to divert their course um because something wasn't something wasn't right there um but this the Soyuz 11 did manage to dock um and that that is again how how do you how do you do that how do you dock a observatory onto a space station it's just simple as that easy peasy seems just it's this all seems way too crazy for me <laughs> it all just seems way too crazy um but again after this little uh flurry of advancements there wouldn't be too much action for the rest of the decade um however there was one important mission. In July of 1975, the first multinational human crewed mission took place. Millions of people around the world watched on television as a United States Apollo spacecraft docked with the Soviet Soyuz capsule. The project, and its handshake in space, was a symbol of detente between the two superpowers during the Cold War. The mission was officially known as the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project. The three American astronauts, Thomas Stafford, Vance Brand, and Deke Slayton, and two Soviet cosmonauts, Alexei Leonov and Valery Kubasov, performed both joint and separate scientific experiments, including an arranged eclipse of the sun by the Apollo module to allow instruments on the Soyuz to take photographs of the solar corona. Uh, I'm sure most of you know what the solar corona is. It's the outermost layer of the sun's atmosphere. Uh, it's, it's the solar eclipse. Um... The pre-flight work provided useful engineering experience for later joint American-Russian space flights. Apollo-Soyuz was the last crewed United States space flight for nearly six years, until the, ne till the next decade. Um, like I said, 1971 and 72 were jam-packed full of stuff. Uh, a little bit of a break until this joint, joint effort in 1975. And then after that, again, it would slow down. Uh, but this is a huge, obviously... Um, huge was a huge statement at the time uh i feel like oh there was a lot of things around this time a lot of big statements that were being made a lot of sort of like appeasements or treaties or things like that that were more political stunts than they were treaties and uh and detente you got to put those things in air quotes because they were political stunts, I think, more than anything else. The tension at this time was so high between the two sides, and I don't think I don't think either of the sides wanted to, wanted a treaty or wanted appeasing the other, or so on and so forth. They just did it because there was so much tension at the time. Especially the U.S. did it because there was so much tension at the time surrounding uh, U.S. and the USSR, not just in the space race and a whole host of other things. Uh, if you know about the Cold War, you know about that, but. Um, they used they used the space race again as a as a way to try and ease tensions and you know regardless of that you know we'll throw that out the window right now this is really cool um, it's the first multinational human crewed mission first time the two different countries obviously these are the only two countries participating in the space race uh, by now um, but the fact that they could resolve for just just a little bit just for a little while um, and work together on a joint project and a couple of their own projects uh, but just 
have the stations dock together and be able to use each other's resources and materials and things like that. That's super cool. I I I can't I can't explain enough. I couldn't I couldn't explain enough how cool that sounds. Um, uh, but I would say that this is the last major development in the space race. Again, I don't think this is the end of the space race. While those two sides did work together here, I don't think it end signaled the end of the competition because again, these these detentes were I I believe were just more they were political stunts more than anything. And I believe that afterwards, these two sides were still trying to compete with each other. I believe the disbanding of the USSR provides the true end of the space race. However, after 1975, it became more of a jog rather than a sprint. Neither side really made any huge technological leaps during this era, and I think the most important space-related advancements came in the years to come. One spacecraft I will touch on, touch on is the Mir. Made by the USSR, it was the first cons consistently inhabited long-term research space station. At the time, it was the largest artificial satellite. It would hold records such as the longest space inhabitant, among others, until the International Space Station was created and launched in 1998. So think you can kind of think of this as like an International Space Station sort of deal. It just kind of was the precursor to that. Um, it, would, it held a lot of the records that the ISS holds right now, uh, like longest inhabitant, longest consecutive days, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it was just kind of a precursor to that. Um, so I did want to touch on that. Again, created by the USSR in 1990, it was launched, I believe. It was launched in 1990, so just before the USSR disbanded. But again, an another huge, huge step in space. Uh, the fact that they could have a place where they could research for a very long time instead of just like a few days and then have to get out of there. You know, they didn't have time pressure on them. They had more resources available to them. They could send things to and from the space station. Uh, super cool. Again, super cool. And they could send people to and from the space station. Just They could just leave the space station out there. That is just unbelievable to me. Um, I, don't, I just don't know how they do it. I'd love to know more about how space works and how they do these things and how these things work. Um, and they work a lot of the times nowadays. You know, back... Back here, obviously, there's a lot of stories about different uh, different spacecrafts burning and people dying, unfortunately. But nowadays, especially, you know, it doesn't happen as much. You know, there's not a lot of there's not as much people going to and from the space station. I don't think, but still, I think it's really cool that they were able to do this. This period after 1975 was a really just kind of a lot of minor improvements. You know, you'd have the U.S. do one thing. I think the Voyager 2 was the first to, like, fly by Neptune, Venus, and Uranus, and stuff like that. And, you know, they, they the Soviet Union would do something that was, you know, kind of a minor little thing. But that was it. There wasn't a lot to speak of uh, around this time. So, but there, but there still was something. You know, you don't, you don't ring the bell in a boxing match and then afterwards they kind of they, they keep like slapping each other like you know one minute this some guy slaps and then 30 seconds later he slaps him back that's not it's not how it works there was still there were still things happening which is why i believe this technically is still a part of the space race and they these two sides still wanted to beat each other like then at the end of the day they still wanted to be better than the other side until the ussr disbanded the U.S. and the USSR want to be better than each other. That's the that's the end of the story. That's the story of the space race. Now a little bit 
a little bit, little bit about why I wanted to tell this story and maybe why I think it's interesting. And there's a couple of things I want to talk about, but firstly, I wanted to talk about is competition necessary? Was the competition necessary? Would space technology have advanced as quickly as it did if, say, the USSR wasn't interested in pursuing space and the U.S. had to try to do it by itself? Would it advance that quickly? Would the U.S. have had the proper motivation if there was nobody to compete with? What if the USSR and the U.S. cooperated the whole time? Surely it would have been done quicker, right? Like you would think, maybe. Uh, obviously, we won't ever know the answer to these questions, but they're fun to think about. You know, uh, I personally think that the technology wouldn't have developed as quickly, I think, if the U.S. and the USSR weren't, didn't have each other to compete with. They, I, they had so much motivation uh, to best the other. I, I think it's, it's unmatched. It's unheard of nowadays to the amount, the sheer amount of motivation they had to be better than the other. And it, you know, because it didn't just come from the space race. It came from the arms race. It came from economy and other things like that and expansion and all sorts of things. You know, the U.S. and the USSR were both expanding at this time. And the, you know, the little proxy wars that they had. This space race just only adds to that. And I think that this insane motivation they had to be better than one another is what drove them to create this insane technology um, so quickly. Uh, I think the only way... I think maybe if they were cooperating, they would have gotten close. But still, I, th I just think their competition was so fierce. It drove them so much that even if they were cooperating again they wouldn't have had any they wouldn't have had each other to go up against so maybe they don't they're not trying to go as hard as quickly as they are you know they'll get there eventually if you cooperate you'll get there but i just don't think they got there as fast as they would have if they were uh, competing against each other uh, my second point is that this is how wars should be fought let's let's be real this kind of builds on the whole competition idea but wars like a space race they're way to me at least they're more interesting than a war than a war war they're more interesting and then there's the obvious pros there's no killing there's no destruction etc 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 you still you're using materials and stuff you're using resources so that still goes into it but then but the obvious things like death and destruction and civilian casualties blah blah blah, blah. That stuff's obvious. It's like, okay. But wouldn't that be just cool if that's how it worked? Like, there's the the war between Russia and Ukraine right now. Um, the gist of it, I'll give, I'll give like a little brief gist. Russia wanted some land. Ukraine wanted some land. That's simple, simple story. Instead of fighting a war over this, what if we just said, okay, three, two, one, go to space. Go to the moon. Whoever gets there first gets this land. Are you kidding? That would be fucking awesome. <laughs> that would be cr that would be incredible if that's how it worked. Obviously, that's unrealistic and that's never going to happen. And, you know, maybe I hear you saying, oh, that's unfair. Some countries are more developed than others, you know? Well, that's how war is, too. That's how real war is. And also, also, wars, there's wars fought between big and small dudes all the time, and they never go the way... Sometimes they don't go the way that you plan it to go. 
I can think I can think of a U.S. example: the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Those were those didn't go the way you thought they would, did they? I can think of a Russian example: the the Soviet uh, Finnish War in uh, 1939. Just as World War II started, Russia wanted to invade Finland. They tried and they got the shit sm- smacked out of them. Little Finland beat them up. You know, little Vietnam, little Korea beat up the U.S. The the, the sh- shit like this happens. The big team doesn't always doesn't always beat the little team. If if the number one ranked team in college football, do they win every game? No, they don't. Number one changes all the time. You do you wouldn't you wouldn't know who would win the race to the moon before it even started. You wouldn't. What if what if somewhere in Africa, you know, they start Russia starts a war with Africa, or we start a war with Africa, and they they break out a fucking ginormous fucking rocket ship out of the ground that they've been working on secretly for the past thirty decades waiting for their chance to shoot to the moon and take over the world. What if that, what? You can't tell me that that's not a possibility. I just think it's, I think this would be so cool if this is how wars are fought. And obviously, it's not. It's just, it's not, it's not something that's ever going to happen. Um, but this is just, it's so, it's so much more fun. It's, you're, you're flexing your brain instead of your muscles. You, yeah, whatever. You know, you're, you're a little, you, you, you fighting's gotta be big, strong, guns. No, just, this, it, I think it would be so cool if this is how wars were fought. Um, and I also wish that the space race was still going on. Because I just think there's not as much motivation or conversation uh, about the space race, or I guess not the space race, but like space in general. I if, if I think if, if there was a space race going on right now, there'd be a lot more people talking about it. Um, so I just, can we just, can we just get another one going? That's, I don't know. Just, just do another one. (laughs) Just, just round two. Do it over again. Uh, who can get out of the galaxy first? Who can fucking put ice on the sun? Some stupid shit. I don't care. Who can, who can throw a a frog from Mars to Mercury? Like, just do something. Who can post a meme on the moon? Just anything. Just do anything. I, I want it. I want the competition to be back. I want the fire to be back. I want us to go to space more. It's it's a cool thing. I don't want to go into space. But other people can. That's cool for them to do. I don't want to. Um, or, or instead of space, what about the ocean? It's right here. It's under us right now. It's under you. It's under me. Let's just go down there. We don't know what's at the ocean yet. How How can we... How are we about to go to the moon? We don't even we haven't even fully explored our own planet, huh? I think I think we, that should be the next one. Let's race to the bottom of the ocean. First one there gets a free. I got nothing, um. But I I want this. I the the I I want this because it brought things that I don't think I'll ever see again. As long as I live. Well, I guess I shouldn't say again. I didn't see it. I wasn't born in 1970. But it brought things that I don't think I'll ever see during my lifetime. This level of human achievement, I'm never going to see it again. Like, somebody landing on the moon had to be... It, it's had to be incredible back then. I think... I find it incredible now. How incredible was it to these people back then? And to say that it's never going to happen again an achievement like this really just it just annoys me you know it just kind of annoys me um and i i'd really like 
really like more of this to happen. But that's it. That's it for today. There's your space race. Uh, Russia versus the U.S. Really cool time there. Uh, lots of really cool stuff happening from 1957 to 1991. Um, and cool stuff happening now in space. So um, I'd highly recommend to go check out more info about the space race. I certainly didn't go over every single bit of it. And if you're more of an engineering nerd, I'd recommend go taking a look at all the different kinds of spacecrafts they created. Um, why they were created that way. How they were created. Uh, there, I, I did come across some of that information and I did absorb some of it. But I figured I didn't want to be sitting here talking about the specs of a fucking every single spacecraft in the fucking world. So that they've ever made. So I didn't do that. Um, it's, not, it's not really my cup of tea. It's not really your cup of tea. I'm just here to rewind history. But that's it for today. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of the C-String Podcast. I want to play a little tune for you on your way out, so I'll leave you guys with that as I leave you guys today, and I'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.
Wonder. 